0: You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Joseph Beal, it's good to see you. It's good to see you, Dan. Um, welcome to everyone in the Sophia audience, MeaningofLife.tv, BloggingHeads.tv. Sophia program is available on streaming video and audio podcast. I'm here with Joseph Beale, um, who I know very well and going back quite a long time, but I'm going to ask him first to introduce himself. And, and just list some of the things that he's doing and about which is the most of our conversation today is going to be about. So Joe, why don't you go ahead?
1: All right, Dan, thank you. Um, I am a philosopher here in New York City. Uh, I graduated from uh, CUNY, the Graduate Center. I got my PhD there in philosophy. Uh, after teaching for a number of years, I left academia in a formal capacity, and I started a nonprofit called the Gotham Philosophical Society. Uh, the idea of bringing uh, uh, to bring philosophy outside of the academy, make it a part of the very fabric of the city to what extent we can. We've put on events um, where we have kind of public events for uh, a general audience. Um, we have started a magazine. We just started it this year. We hope to see it grow. It's called Phi on New York. The idea is to have some of the philosophers who live and work here in the city um, create a conversation to think about what life in the city is like from a philosophical perspective, almost any aspect of city life. And we have a youth program called Young Philosophers of New York. The idea is to uh, generate uh, interest and provide access to to philosophy to encourage philosophical reasoning uh, from K through 12 uh, and to we've done some after-school programs we're trying to get into the public schools now it looks like we're going to be starting that uh, in January we've got a public school here in uh, Washington Heights that we hope to be in um, and you know just any way that we can kind of make New York uh, a more thoughtful and philosophical city that's part of our our mission
0: and you have a, a book that's that just came out recently uh, am i correct uh, the, on this subject of philosophy in the city
1: yes uh the rutledge handbook of philosophy of the city which i of course i right, have right here um this just came out at the end of the summer um it is co-edited uh by sharon marr samantha Knoll, and myself uh some uh your viewers might know samantha um, Samantha Knoll, she works uh, at the University of Washington. She does a, a lot of uh, work on food um, and sustainability. Um, Sharon Moore has worked extensively uh, in philosophy of the city, and she was one of the original uh, founders of the Public Philosophy Network. Uh, so some will know her uh, through that vein as well. And you have a contrib- You also contributed an essay. Am I correct? Yes, I did. It's called uh, Back to the Cave, um, which is um, kind of the idea of you know when you the philosopher in the uh, allegory of the cave leaves, goes out to the brilliant light of truth, the sunlit uplands. Uh, the idea is that he's responsible. He has an obligation to come back into the cave. Um, and um, so that's part, part of what the city's I'm the, talking about. The city's the, the city's cave. The cave
0: yeah and you're the philosopher who's returned
1: who well has i think that i've returned th- <laughs> well i'm not the only one um but I, I try to make a case for uh for how to think about that return
0: sure sure um and for just for full disclosure purposes let me say that um <clears throat> joe and i i've known joe since 1991 we have a lot of connections Mm-hmm. One thing we we actually grew up very close to each other on Long Island. I grew up in Roslyn. He grew up in Williston Park, which um, is probably a five minutes drive away. Um, but didn't know each other growing up. Um, met in graduate school around 1991. Uh, eventually, we became roommates, housemates, um, both in Manhattan and Queens. So I know I know Joe very very well and, and for a long time. Um, Joe, let's um, first thing I just would like to know. Excuse me. Um, So when we were coming out of graduate school, there was a very standard traditional ambition. And that was, you know, you tried to get a tenure track job or some sort of full-time job in philosophy in an academic department. I did this, you did this. Um, You then, however, chose to leave um, and to go into a purely public intellectual capacity. Now, I, myself, I'm doing something similar. I haven't left formally. I still am employed by the university, <coughs> excuse me, but a lot more of my work, a lot, much larger share of my work now is what I would call in the area of public intellectualism. So I'd like to hear a little bit just about your journey. Why did you, because you left academia much earlier, um, um, and 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 why did you do that, and why did you decide to to go this route?
1: Yes, I left um, in 2014, um, and then I started Gotham Philosophical Society, uh, you know, almost immediately thereafter. Um, I think there are a kind of a number of, of strands to it, um, kind of just in some ways feeling a bit burnt out by uh, the academic environment or or no longer... Uh, feeling entirely comfortable in it, um, I always had you know, kind of from a productive standpoint. You know, writing articles for journals never came easy for me. Um, I, in many ways, I kind of there, there was something kind of tedious for me about kind of writing them and and publishing them uh, in conferences. Um, I I wanted to. Um, you know, i I guess I wanted to think about things in a way that kind of had a much more broader uh impact broader in a certain sense kind of like just non academics so just not having other academics as you know the interlocutors um but also you know a little bit more focused on life here in new york uh and you know an element. Of that, and, and we can come back. I know we want to talk about philosophy uh, of a particular city, so like philosophy of New York, but some of it is philosophical. Um, you know, I am not kind of a universalist about about truth, about normativity, about any of these things. I think that many of these issues are uh, localized, parochial. I, I talk about philosophy as being kind of, in many ways, a parochial activity, um, though. I know many philosophers would disagree with that as I, as I have tried to, um, recruit philosophers to think about life here in the city and think about, you know, try to apply some of their ideas. I have been told by some philosophers, well, my philosophy isn't parochial. You know, that, you know, my, you know, so they don't, they don't have kind of these limited applications. Yeah. But I actually think that philosophy ideally can do that um and so it was you know some of the constraints of academia um some of you know the politics of academia um and trying to write things and engage other philosophers uh kind of a, it's a i found it a very somewhat limiting um or you know the restrictions publishing things that no one reads um yeah. those those sorts of things contributed to a kind of a growing dissatisfaction that though I very much still have this passion and love for philosophy and, and want to pursue it, um doing it within the confines of um the college classroom I was personally finding um less and less uh satisfying. Yeah.
0: Yeah, you know, the the um the academic publishing i 'm totally with you on um, um, it's got it's getting it 's gotten very frustrating you know you realize you know how few people you 're talking to you realize how esoteric most of what you 're talking about is you being in the and you especially the area you've always been mostly interested in is ethics in which you get the least mileage out of the purely academic discussion and which and in which the whole point of the whole endeavor ultimately is to be is to be applied right i mean that's the whole point of it It, it, it's not a subject that that has a purely theoretical uh interest um at least i've never seen it that way i i work in a lot of more abstract areas i mean i do work in metaphysics and epistemology and and so you know i didn't quite feel as um i didn't grow as dissatisfied with academic publishing as quickly as you because I was interested in things that really there are only a few other people who are interested in that want to talk to you about them. Um, you were probably also
1: more successful at it. You know? I was
0: quite successful at it. I, I didn't have trouble getting published. Um, um, I do write very quickly. Um, um, as you, as you, I'm sure you remember, I'm, i one thing I don't have a problem with is speed and, and, and verbosity and all of that sort of thing. <laughs> um, um, but I did also get a little tired of what struck me as more and more kind of um, a, almost an unstated requirement to conform to a whole bunch of orthodoxies that are currently pervasive in the discipline. And I'm not just talking about political ones. I'm talking about orthodoxies even within the technical areas that I just was really more and more just didn't want, didn't want to be constrained by also the writing style um, um, I more and more became, came to care about the actual writing, the literary quality of what I was doing, because I'm becoming what I think is quite a good writer. And the way you have to write for these academic journals is just, is just shit. Excuse my French, but I mean, it's just it's not good writing for the most part. Um, so I hear you on that. The teaching, I'm a little less... Because, you know, one of the things you are doing is this youth program which we'll talk about, I hope, in a little more detail. <clears throat> so I'm not sure I understand what put you off the teaching side of it. I understand the academic publishing, but the teaching side of it, is, those are real people, right, in the sense that they're, and and they're young. So what, what about the teaching side of it did you get demoralized by, demystified with? Okay.
1: I think it was the apathy of the students, the general apathy of the students, um, uh, (laughs) sorry to say wore me down. So instead of, um, you know, kind of becoming to know myself, I, I thought of myself as a fairly, you know, good teacher full of all sorts of passion and, uh, and, and, uh, thrilled to engage students um when I first started teaching I would, and as you know taught for quite some time as an adjunct while yeah. I was in graduate school but um the over time, the apathy of my students was growing, and I was not responding you know as like Robin Williams and standing on the desk and and firing them up. Their apathy was affecting me and changing me. So I was becoming more apathetic about how I was teaching. And I don't think that's very good. I was, I became a worse teacher. Um, and that it was important to me to not do that. I mean, to some, you know, they deserve better than what I was increasingly doing. Um, I also, though, again, the what was another way of my thinking about this was that this apathy needed to be addressed earlier.
0: Mm.
1: That the need to get to the kids earlier than college. college so, late. college is. Often too late. It, it. I don't want to. You don't want to write anybody off. And if they had the Robin Williams, if they had the the full, you know, the if they had the right teacher, then maybe it can happen. But I do think that there are many students by the time of college, they do not want to really engage philosophically. Again, there are some, and it also depends on what kind of institution you are. You know, if you are at Maybe some top notched institution, maybe you're going to get more. Um, but for where I was, you're, you're having people who, a lot of them, they want to get through. They want to get a job. They want to just, they, they don't want to be challenged in many ways in the, in the classroom. Um, and, I think that that is unfortunate on a number of levels and, you know, because of the Young Philosophers Program, I, I, you know, I think of kids, particularly at a younger age, they are much more intuitively philosophical. They have philosophical uh, questions. They're capable of thinking abstractly, thinking normatively, running certainly, through yes, all sorts of different ideas.
0: Young adolescents. Certainly adolescents. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And there is For too many of those students, there's not that much philosophy or uh, opportunities for those adolescents to philosophize. There are some, and we can talk more about that, but for many of them, they are in a educational environment where there is insufficient time, or it's conceived that there's insufficient time, for them to philosophize. They've got... Their, the curriculum that they have to meet, there are things that they are required to do. And so their philosophical questions go unanswered. And the more they go unanswered, the less they get asked. So by the time they get to college, many of them have just ceased asking those questions at all. And so when you go into the classroom, and my, you know, like many philosophers, can kind of try to be a bit Socratic and try to get things out of them and, you know, say, what do you think? They stare back at you. <laughs> it's like, don't, I, you know, I don't, you know, don't ask me what I think, you know, tell me what I need to know. Um, so in order to change that, to try to, to find a cure in a sense for that apathy, um, one, we need to do other things like change the business model we have of education, but I think kids need to be philosophically, uh, you know—you need to reach them. They need to be engaged at a much younger age. And so I think it's important in a sense to do pre-college philosophy. Um, and, and, you know, it's a bit of know thyself. You know, I, you know, I was, I was getting to the point where I really shouldn't have been in front of a college classroom. I mean, I, maybe I could do it now, <laughs> you know, but did, at the time you, you, I was getting burnt out.
0: When did you leave?
1: 2014 okay so so far uh,
0: the reason I, it's just listening to you it's it's um kind of eerie because i'm i'm thinking so many of the same things myself um i'm just coming to it a little later that's all um um but i'm starting to feel I, I'm, part of the reason that i'm planning on retiring you know so once victoria graduates high school both nancy and i are my wife and i are considering retiring um and that is that i just i don 't think that i 'm the right person to be teaching these people anymore um, um, and for me i 'm starting to and i 'm ashamed to say this, i 'm actually starting to feel active contempt for my students um, um and that 's just you cannot be someone 's teacher i mean that that 's a viol. that 's a fundamental violation of the mission right i mean i mean yeah. and that tells me that i 'm i 'm either too old um not too old in any absolute sense but too far away from them psychologically and and you know I think that you're right in terms of you're partly right in terms of the age issue you need to get <clears> to them sooner, but I think even irrespective of the age issue, we need to talk to people outside of these formal frameworks, the purposes of which have become completely corrupted in their minds right um, as well as in reality and so here's what I, here's what I'm getting at um they really do only view their higher education as a process of certification at this point,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, professional certification. They don't view it anymore in the way that we viewed it when we were in school. Sure. Certainly we viewed it partly that way, but we also viewed it as sort of the time when we would fully come into ourselves, right. As adults, as people, um, um, uh, uh find our intellectual place where we, you know, what we think about things, you know, all that sort of thing. I just don't see that now. And actually it's not better with the higher level students. It's worse. Um, um, That's why I I refuse anymore to teach in the honors college because their certification fixation is 15 times more intense and more mercenary than that of the lower levels. I would rather actually teach the delinquents at this point because no, there's still some chance since they're not so concerned about getting along in the system, there's still more of a chance that they might actually be interested. <coughs> Excuse me. So I'm, I'm feeling a lot of the same things you're feeling um, and wanting more and more to just engage with people outside of these formal environments that I don't really think are serving the purpose that they, that they used to serve. I don't know if we're, it sounds to me like we're, we're very similar on this in terms of what we're just dis, dissatisfied about. Mm. Um, so let's actually then talk about what you are doing. So I guess Gotham is the umbrella, right? And then everything else you're doing is an, a, a manifestation of it or falls under it or.
1: Yeah, I think, yeah, that's, you could say that. So Gotham Philosophical Society is the, is the nonprofit. That's the, that's the organization. Um. It's you know the kind of an online platform is Phi on New York and uh, the youth education young philosophers of New York. So let's just be now much more specific. What is the actual
0: mission of Gotham what what is it what is it your stated purpose to do, and what are the some of the ways
1: you've been trying to do it? Well, to uh, bring critical thinking, analytical imagination um, to the thought of everyday um, life in the city. So from providing people with opportunities to think about aspects of their lives here in the city from a, a deeper philosophical perspective, doing that, say, through events, um, having philosophers write some things, focusing on on various aspects of the city, whether it's the transportation system, whether it is environmental policy, uh, whether it's about uh, architecture in the city, about the building boom. Um, you know, it can be overtly political. Uh, it can be uh, light. You know, thinking of um, kind of artistic. Uh, you know, reviews of. Films or performances um, would like to influence policy to have philosophers provide a view of issues and challenges and questions facing the city. Um, you know, the city the city continues to evolve and it always will. Um, primarily, it is um, concern for a profit. Uh, that determines basically what policies we have, and, very, and I would like philosophers and not just philosophers, but you know, philosophers to contribute to this. But I would like people who are in positions of of making decisions, policymakers, politicians, act community activists, to be uh, exposed to different ways of thinking about some of these issues, coming at it from a different angle having philosophers kind of be a part of that kind of conversation about the direction of the city.
0: So this is, I mean, this is mostly though going to engage it's in some way with the political landscape of the city, right? Because even if you're whatever the, all these issues you listed, whether it's, um, 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 Uh, transportation or, or the real estate boom, or, 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 or what have you. Ultimately the aim is, or the the idea is that to try to affect legislation and administration, right. um, Of all these things, you know? Um, So, I mean, it may, there may be a philosophical issue regarding, I don't know, let's say uh, the the city's parks, right. Having to do with aesthetics, um, you know, historical preservation, whatever. But ultimately the point is to hope to bring some of this analysis and maybe more thoughtful um, um approaches to these subjects to the ears uh of policy makers and administrators correct
1: yes that is that's a goal
0: that that yes so uh, you, you you host it, events and i assume events are sort of
1: speaking engagements yes um, we've had multiple. We've had kind of different kinds of events. We've had speaking engagements where um, it's you know the kind of more tr- uh, your traditional speaker presenting a topic um, meant to you know not not to be uh, f- full of technical jargon, but meant for a general audience, uh, a, a philosophical issue of various kinds. We've done. Other community events where um, we had uh, we had a series called "A Lawyer, a Poet, and a Philosopher Walk into a Bar," and the idea was to have a theme, a topic. So we talked about truth once. We talked about love. We talked about uh, money. Uh, we talked about misery. Uh, we talked about innocence. Um, and the idea was was that the lawyer would. Uh, address the topic from a, kind of a legal perspective uh, how does how does the legal system kind of think about or engage with this concept? The poet took it took it from an artistic perspective and the philosopher uh, from a philosophical perspective uh, you, and then the audience becomes a part of this conversation. Um, and what's interesting, you know lawyer, poet, and philosopher walk into a bar. Those conversate. The ultimate conversations were almost ninety five percent philosophical. Yeah, yeah. They just immediately, you know, people wanted to get. You know, once you give them the opportunity to start really kind of chewing on something and thinking about something, um, that's that's where they want to go. Yeah. Um, and but it was wonderful in a sense to have the the lawyer, you know, the, the legal and the artistic kind of kind of feeding it and and giving you some things to you know, kind of points to, uh, to work around. So that, that's a, that's a sort of an event. You know, we've had some panel discussions on the nature of pregnancy and the experiences of, uh of, of um, uh, people having um, miscarriage and kind of the philosophical dimensions uh, of that. That was a very uh, successful uh, event. So, I mean, they aren't always, um, explicitly political, like, okay, let's have an event so that, you know, we can kind of create a, you know, a, a you know, some new policy action. But some of the events and certainly, you know, one of the goals uh, of the magazine would be to kind of steer the conversation in a way that potentially you know, when there are issues of, of this sort of relevance that you it could get in front of the eyes of policymakers and politicians and they might think about these issues in a new way
0: so it's not your the association the the the, the association you're not you it's not your intent to ever sort of sort of be involved in sort of direct lobbying right of um, of, of city government or or it's more a precursor to that you hope to sort of Engage in the kind of thinking and conversations that then might lead other people to lobby.
1: Yeah, I would say that that's a, a fair point. certainly at, at this point that is that's how we conceive the mission would be that it would be the precursor let's get the conver- let's get the conversation going so that you know we could inspire some community activists to say, okay, you know, that was a really interesting thing I read or I heard or I part of this conversation and then start moving in that direction. Yeah. Um, or, how, about, how much of this thing is going on? I mean, the, the philosophical, so-called philosophical cafes have been
0: going on for a while. I know Massimo, um, who's a regular partner of mine here, I'm sure you know, and I think he's done events for you. Yes. Um, Massimo has been running philosophical cafes for quite a long time. Um, Aside from the sort of the philosophical cafe phenomenon, I mean, how much of this stuff is going on um,
1: in New York? Well, there's, you know, there's Massimo um, doing the cafe. Um, Ian Olasov, uh, who is a grad student at um, City University of New York, he runs um, an organization called Brooklyn Public Philosophers, and they have um public talks at the Brooklyn Public Library so he's got some nice digs there um and and so those are talks for general audience um and he also has a a great um a great thing he started called ask a philosopher booth so he has set up and I've done some of these with him but he uh I mean, it's exactly what it sounds like. So going to a green market, going to Union Square, Bryant Park, um, he will, you know, he has a, basically it's a table, you know, with chairs and a banner. It says, ask a philosopher. Uh, and he'll put out a couple of bowls uh, that have uh, you know, maybe some thought experiments or some philosophical questions and a bowl of candy. Uh if you have a question or uh, uh, something you'd like to talk about, you can raise it. If you just, you don't have a question of your own uh, and you're like, okay, well, let me just, let me see what this is all about. You can put your hand into the bowl and pull out, you know, the Chinese room experiment or something like that. Right. And, right. and you can sit down and have a conversation. Um and uh, as I said, I've done a few of them with him. He's done, you know, many of them, and, and often it's like a four-hour session. And you know, he has a number of different philosophers come sit down for two hours. Uh, the time flies. It's it's just it's you know, you're sitting in Bryant Park and you're just like talking to people. You know, people walk by, they like look at the sign, you know, and they're like, "All right," um, you know, just wonderful little piece of you know, it's 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 public engagement it's public philosophy it's public theater you know it's uh it, and you know you get very very interesting questions you know uh why is there anti-semitism um you know and you know questions that you can you, you can feel okay i could try to answer this and questions where like you sit and so have no know, idea. i have i do not know you know and you try to work you know work it work it out um but they're they're wonderful experiences so There's that, um, I, you know, I think if I could say something, what Gotham Philosophical Society, or what my goal has been with it, that I think is somewhat distinguishes itself from Brooklyn Public Philosophers and what Massimo's doing, Philosophy Cafe, I guess is this self-consciously kind of political, um, Dimension to it, um, I am interested not just in the wonder of philosophy and sharing that and having people think about you know like okay let's have a talk that you might give to colleagues well why don't you do it in a way for an audience because it's something that they rarely get and it's kind of intrinsically valuable that's wonderful i actually i do think it's important. And this is kind of the back to the cave thing of, uh, you know, what can we kind of do about the lives we're living, the city that we live in, we live here. Um, how can we make this city a better place? How we, can we make our lives a better place? And using philosophy um, to Great to, to look at how to answer that, those questions, to provide some answers, to make the questions and the thought about it more, more substantive, to be, to be more engaged. Again, on every facet, you know, it, it's, you know, you know, they're, they're your big ticket items, but even the lesser ones, you know, about what we can do with the green space, you know, what, what should we be doing about specialized high schools in New York City, you know, you, you name it the way that their lives are affected here. um, I think it's important um, to see what philosophy can help move that discussion along. So uh, that is overtly significant to me and the um, the mission of Gotham philosophical society.
0: So let me just ask you a a few more things in this direction. So, um, I guess one thing I would I would I'm trying to think what order I want to ask these in. Um, um, I guess I wonder, you know, the 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 space between just sort of generally like making people more aware of philosophy, right, Um, um, and bringing it more into a into the public discourse rather than having it be uh, uh, closer in the academy. Between that and the very specific application of philosophical um, techniques, tool sets etc to specific issues that have philosophical weight in your city, right? Um, I guess with regard to the latter, and maybe this is a bit of a, a challenge um, could you could you say that for a place like New York City it's actually a little bit late for that. Um, and here, here's what I'm getting at. Here's what I'm getting at. And you tell me, you know, what you think of this. It felt to me, so I, we, you and I both lived in Manhattan when we were in graduate school. We lived there the entire 90s, the entire 1990s. And it felt to me like during that decade, the city kind of made a collective decision of what it was going to be in perpetuity, right? Like, so we came out of, in the seventies, we came out of the seventies when the city was really sort of a really dangerous crime ridden falling apart kind of place. This um, so is sort of, you know, I get the image from like taxi driver, right? That sort of, that sort of, that was the city of the seventies. It wasn't that there was no like wealthy pockets in the city, but they were kind of surrounded by um, into the eighties when you still had this really bad crime wave, you also had a lot of racial unrest and, 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 um, a conflict. <clears throat> and then the nineties came and during the period while you and I were living there together, um, it felt to me like the city made a collective decision. It was going to go clean. It was going to go corporate. It was going to go mega rich. Um, and that's exactly what it did um, to the point to which, you know, I can remember when, you'd be scared to walk down 42nd Street in the middle of the daytime um, because it was nothing but, you know, porno theaters and crackheads and hookers. And and now it's like Disney World. You could, you could walk down 42nd Street at 3 o'clock in the morning waving $100 bills and nothing would happen to you. I feel like the city kind of made this very strong collective decision. It was going to go in this direction. It was going to become the, what this corporate, safe, super clean, um, super wealthy uh place and now that it's on that course that just simply entails a number of things right that are just going to be the case and i guess i don't know what you could possibly do about that other than to fight at the hot, at the biggest level that decision but once that decision has kind of been embraced it seems like everything else is sort of follows from it right so what is there really I guess I'm wondering if it's a little too late to try to get the city to be thoughtful. It already went through its process of thinking what it was going to become, and it's done it, right? <laughs> well, it's a, it's a provocation. I'm not, I'm not saying yeah, yeah. go home. You know, I'm asking you, how much efficacy do you think you can have in such an, a, a hyper billionaireish, corporatized environment? They just don't give a crap, right? And they're not going to allow anything to happen that would affect that larger direction, right? And I don't even know that they could be democratically opposed at this point, right? Since they control all of the candidates and they control all of the right. I mean, what could you possibly do at this point?
1: This well there's so
0: much money, isn't there?
1: There may there may well be. Uh you know, I think you know, while I, I, I'm sympathetic to a certain degree your point about the the nineties, uh certainly that was um a transformative decade. I mean look, the money's always been there. I mean it's always been kind of run by moneyed interests, you know, as I as I as I've I've put it uh, in places. I mean, New York is run by the moneymakers, you know, from the if using the plate the platonic uh terminology. Um, absolutely. Whether anything can be done. Um, I mean, I'm, I mean, New York city is not going to become, you know, some sort of, uh, you know, social experiment, some sort of commune anytime soon. Um, but I do think that, you know, whether it's working on the margins um, or you know, it's taking you know issue by issue trying to kind of move the needle in a way um, towards look a, a more equitable somewhat more just city i mean the 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 fact you know it is a kind of a the things that you said are are true there's a kind of it is there's the city's got a a corporate sheen on it that it did not have 30 years ago.
0: It's why it's why um, I really don't enjoy going there anymore. I mean, I, I I go there sometimes, you know, you know, I visit my parents who still live on Long Island. And I'll go into the city, but I really just don't don't really like the place anymore. It seemed to have really just become a corporate billionaires' paradise um, that that just sort of doesn't really have any edge or. or you know? well it's the you know the
1: vanishing New york syndrome so you know, there's a book recently you know put out you know kind of documenting all of these kind of iconic parts of the city that uh are um disappearing um look it, it it's tr- that <gasps> is troubling there's something you know there's kind of aesthetic issues there there's ethical issues um, um i but there as there are grave injustices here in the city. There's great inequality. Um, life can be very, very difficult for people here in the city. All sorts of different people. Um, our education system is has is rife with problems. Um, While there is enormous amounts of money here, how that money is used, how it is distributed in terms of the various services, um, all of these are kind of, they're standing challenges, standing questions that need to be addressed. Um, And they may ultimately be addressed as they are often addressed in terms of, well, what will make the most powerful people as much profit as possible. But I think I, I don't want to be so cynical to say that it's, that it's pointless. I wasn't
0: suggesting that. I I want
1: to be, you know, I want us to think about what we can do. Um, And, you know, you can't get anything done unless you, you know, you try. Maybe we can, maybe we can make the education system much more thoughtful um and much more equitable. Um you know, maybe you know we can put more money into the transportation system and make it much more accessible for uh people who have various physical uh disabilities, for mothers with and fathers. I pushed my kids around the city in strollers. Um, 25% of the subway stations in the c- city um, only about 25% of them have elevators right um, it's uh it's not a very accessible uh system um you know and that's just you know so there's uh, some, there's areas. something
0: very specific right so so that that's, that's good I, because what i was just about to ask you was could you say one or two things that you think there actually is still some space to sort of make changes that would be, um, that would be informed by sort of a philosophical critique and then a the discussion. So let's take the issue of, of, of access, right. Um, and, the, and the New York city subways are always notoriously bad in terms of access um, um, partly because the system's so damn old, right. I mean, um, um, mm. everything was built before we had all these federal, regulations and imperatives regarding accessibility for disabled people and stuff. Um, So let's take that as a specific, specific issue. Um, Is your idea sort of that, Hey, look, perhaps if the people involved were thinking of this more straightforwardly as a flat out ethical issue, there, would be more, there, there might be more urgency and action in that regard. Is that sort of the sense in which you want to try to contribute to a conversation that you could see having direct efficacy? Um, um, is that the sort of thing you're, you're thinking about?
1: Um, to, yes, to some d- degree, yes, that it, drawing attention to the ethical dimensions of this. It's not merely a matter of efficiency, of, say, moving people around the, right. the city. Um, but there is you know an ethical um, there is an ethical dimension to this um, there's a a piece in in Fi on New York by the philosopher uh, Jennifer Scurrrow. She wrote a piece on access um, where she's trying to, get, to draw attention to to just this sort of thing to to kind of to make a case that um you know we've got kind of there are moral dimensions ethical dimensions to things like transportation um and you know we can even you, know, you can make cases that even for with respect to efficiency having it more accessible to more people um uh will will have you know pay dividends in terms of productivity and what have you uh, so, you know, that, you know, that is, that is a big part of it. Um, having us think about it, not in just such a kind of a narrow way, you know, it's just matter. it's a mode of transportation. Yeah. 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 I mean, there's, so I'm assuming, you know,
0: when, you know, that there were, that there was an ethical conversation, let's just call it that, that went on, that was part of the engine that fueled the creation of these various disability regulations and laws that we have, you know, the, the, the federal the, the anti-discrimination acts are probably based on a philosophical conversation. But then once it's sort of in place, the conversation turns into a conversation about compliance, about legal compliance, right? Um, I'm assuming that New York has somehow figured out some way to get around these compliances because I have to assume that a lot of New York subway access is actually in just flat-out violation, right, of the Americans with Disabilities Act. And I guess what I'm asking you as a philosopher is: is part of the point also to just to, to not allow these issues to just simply become matters of compliance with regulations that then allow people to find the loopholes and to keep the point is to keep saying, no, 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 this is a profoundly moral question, right? Yeah, no, I, no, no, I, no, I no, the fact that you're complying. Yes, does it change the fact that sixty percent of the damn handicapped people cannot get into the fucking subway right um um is sort of that sort of the idea
1: yes uh, that that is certainly a part of it that it that it is not just about uh compliance with regulations of course it should a dimension of this should also be looking at the regulations you know are the regulations you know, what are they? Are they, you know, are they sufficient? Sufficient to what, you know, are they just, could they be improved? Basically, you know, so, I mean, I'm a, you know, kind of like a a full, you know, know, philosophy can look at anything, you know, look at anything we do, take a step back and, and try to critique it, you know, critique it in the sense of, you know, what, what have we been doing here? to what purpose to what end is it sufficient to that end is the end a legitimate end is there a way that we can improve upon this is the way is there a way that we can supersede this practice that we've been doing so we can talk about the subway system we can talk about any sort of regulations basically anything that we can use the philosophical skills of, of kind of real critical analytical reflection on these things to have us rethink just what it is we're doing yeah. rather than just continuing. Well, you know, of course we've got to comply with these things. These are the regulations. Um, we should be looking at the regulations as well. You know, yeah. and if, Of course, if we're satisfied with them, we're satisfied with them. Yeah. yeah. But I, I know, know, should we be hiring more police officers to patrol the city? Is that a good use of the funds that right. the governor, uh, you know, is – and what are the police officers doing? You know, um, You know, is it – Do we have security issues, you know, fair evasion? Is that really the problem that we have? I think, again, philosophers can contribute to this conversation about how we are, you know, what is, you know, what, how is the city thinking about its transportation issues and challenges?
0: Yeah, Um, Yeah. 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 I actually, I'm just curious as an aside. I mean,
1: How is New York not in constant violation of federal? You know, it's, it's, I have not, I don't know the answer. When we're done here, I'm I'm going to actually look into that because, you know, as the statistic I gave you uh, before. It's kind of a shocking number. I mean, it is, it's, it's um, overwhelming, you know, it's, it's about 75% of the system. you, You don't have elevator access.
0: Right. Which is, this would seem to be flat out violation. And I'm assuming that the city's lawyers have figured out a way to, to be technically in compliance um, um, without, you know, but this reminds me also um, it's actually a conversation we just had in one of our department meetings. It almost is, it seems to me like in a kind of preemptive defense against philosophers trying to get involved in these conversations you almost have this sort of lower level, less philosophical, but it can kind of pose at it, um, sort of professional standards regimen that sort of comes in. So I'll give you you an example of what I mean. Um, So we are no longer able to offer a business ethics course because in order for the course to run, business students would have to take it. The problem is that the business school doesn't want them taking our business ethics course because some of the things they're going to learn in the business ethics course are basically going to uh, out much of what's being taught in the business school as just flat-out unethical, right? So what the business school has done is they've created a course in business ethics, but really all it is is it's a kind of a professional standards course. Now, that's all fine and well, but if the profession is corrupted, and then so are its standards, right? And so it doesn't do you any good. <laughs> um, in other words, a professional standards is there largely to sort of uh, make excuses and offer post hoc rationalizations. And I wonder whether what you're describing is, that, is, is this in a more generalized form, and that is in the sense that ph- philosophers are going to have to really push themselves into this conversation because there's almost a kind of a built-in resistance like if we let those people in, then we're going to have to discuss all these tar- these things, and we really would rather not, right? <laughs> mm. <laughs> because the interests involved aren't going to benefit from them.
1: Well, look, I mean, if if you're going to take the idea of the gadfly seriously, you know, it, it you do kind of have to take up kind of. Uh, I think have to be, you know, annoying in some respects, you know, uh, and to to push um you know i i you know speaking for myself um you know i i think and others can decide you know how much this uh is true of them uh you know how much we just simply accept and and just take for granted you know that this is standard operating procedure um and just you know you kind of you know tinkering away kind of without really kind of pushing in and saying, you know, wait, wait, let's, you know, how much, you know, if we can rethink here at the margin, maybe we can keep pushing in and just start eventually kind of rethinking, rethinking. Yeah. At all. Yeah. Um, so I do think that philosophers, um, you know, I would like to see philosophers do more. I would like to do more of it and i'm in, and I'm, I'm kind of feeling my way on how to do that. how to really be kind of a part of my community um you know, as i you know i as I've said you know philosophers um you know I've written this you know in in that the essay you know philosophers they live and they work in their communities. But much of what they do has no real bearing on their community. so they're not philosophizing for their communities or philosophizing with their communities yeah. um, and if we think of philosophy if, if we think that these that philosophy has is important and, and, and there are certain skills. I know you had a, a conversation with Massimo about expertise, philosophical expertise i 'm in the camp. That, uh, I think much more sympathetic with, uh, you. I mean, I think our, we, that philosophers have certain skills that have been honed in part by, by their education, by the kind of the philosophical training as you keep going. These are not skills that you can only get through philosophy. And people – and there are non-philosophers who have these skills to degrees far in excess of many philosophers. But philosophy is a wonderful way to get these skills and to develop them. And I think applying those skills, um, applying that kind of critical engagement um, eh, to – kind of the real life you're leading you know in in community with others i think is important um so i mean in, in i think i you know, i think it's kind of part of the socratic mission yeah. um so yeah.
0: um i you know
1: i think that i would like to see the the philosophical community of new york city which is
0: Sig- highly
1: regarded it's significant in number it's significant in talent um, but you know, in many ways, it's kind of invisible.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, in the NYU, life. Of yeah, NYU, City University of New York, Columbia, and then of course in the orbit, Rutgers. Um, you know, you're talking about some of the top programs in the country. You're talking about in the case mm-hmm. of NYU, huge programs with dozens of 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 people working in them, and you're absolutely right they may as well not be there at all if what you mean is their impact on the actual city itself. Right. I mean, I mean, they, they might as well, none of them be there and it's, it's, it is awfully odd, right. Um, I'm in a certain way, but I also think that actually the elite quality of these institutions is part of the reason, right. It works against you. I almost think you'd be better off trying to recruit from the community colleges and, 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 you know, from the people who are, who are not so invested in the institution and who are have a lot more tangible contact with the ordinary, the more ordinary people in the city. You know what I mean? I I almost think you'd be better off trying to recruit from the, from from the two year institutions. Um,
1: We recruit from anywhere. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's, uh... (laughs)
0: Um, let me ask you, um, because you said something really interesting uh, off, off, off-camera that I wanted to ask you about, and it's apropos given what you, what you were just talking about. And maybe this will be the thing we'll close on. Um, you said to me that, in your view, philosophy ultimately is parochial rather than universalist. Um, and that really interests me. I, I suspect I very much agree with you. Um, um, but I would like you to talk about that more in the context of why a philosophy of a particular city, right? I understand even the idea of like, you know, philosophy of urban life as opposed to, let's say, rural or suburban or whatever I could see. But why such a particular idea of a philosophy of a particular place? And maybe you could discuss the, this issue of parochial versus universalist in that context.
1: Yeah, um, well, according. course – in line with what some of the other things I was just saying before, it's like, you know, New York's where I live. So, um, I'm interested, my, my, as you mentioned before, I mean, my, my originally it was ethics, meta ethics, normativity, uh, which took me into thinking about truth. Um, I am, uh, when you say kind of a non-universalist, like I'm a, I'm an irrealist about these things kind of um, use technical philosophical terms. Um, I, you know, there, there are no objective, you know, normative truths as far as I, I am concerned. So these are things, you know, it's a human product, you know, we create them and we create them kind of, I think in, relationships in engagements with one another and this particular city is a particular you know and its particular communities people are here we're working our way around the issues that arise and the challenges that we face we're creating our norms we're creating our sense of expectations of one another we're creating the normative path about what we ought and ought not do, what our goals are, and it's not the same as Springfield, Missouri, and it's not the same as Los Angeles, and it's not the same as Cambridge, Massachusetts, or where have you? Um, it is parochial, you know. That the philosophical skills of trying to think through how to live well—you you live here and you live now in this place. Yeah. with these people. So in that sense, you know, the question of how to live that Socratic kind of question, I mean, or, you know, what, you know, how, what, what ought I to do? It's what ought I to do here with you, you know, right. And, and how can we, you know, what, where are we going to go? How are we going to get there? Um I, you know, I think those are kind of fundamental normative issues and they have to be tailored to your specific time and place to the people that you're going to be working these out with. They're collaborative. They're collaborative endeavors. Um, So, I mean, I think of philosophy as pretty much a collaborative endeavor. um, And, you know, know, the difference between public and academic philosophy is simply who you're collaborating with, you know, (laughs) academic philosophy. It's kind of, you're collaborating with a kind of other professionals uh, and, and you're kind of creating a whole kind of uh, a world of philosophical issues and con- a conversation. Right, Public right. philosophy is simply just doing that, but doing it with your neighbors, you know, doing it with your, you know, your, your, the, the people you live on the block with uh, or the politicians who you have elected in a sense to uh, steward your city, you know, towards some particular goal. So. Um, you know, I do not think because, you know, the, the idea of non universalist, because I do not think that there is some overarching sense of the way we ought to be or the way we ought to act or what's correct or what's true. Um, I do not think that one size fits all. So I think that it's the issues that I am engaged with or I am, you know, my point in time and space here has put me in contact with certain people with certain concerns, certain issues. I have my children. I have to face what I have to get them to maturity and the challenges I'm faced. That's where I want to apply my, that's what I want to use my philosophical skills and abilities such as they are for.
0: No, I understand that. I guess, let, let, me, let me try and ask this another way. Um, um, look, it requires no explanation from an ordinary perspective um, that, you, that, that, that you're interested and you care about what's going on in the place you actually live, right? I mean, that, that from an ordinary common sense perspective, doesn't even need to be explained. In the philosophical framework, though, it does have to kind of be defended, right? Because, and this is why I was wondering if you would say something maybe about this idea of philosophy being parochial in some fundamental way. Because someone like a Peter Singer is going to say to you, well, if what you're concerned about is your ethical obligation, uh, it has to be um, directed towards where there's the most need, and New York is not where there's the most need. The most need is – where there's the most need is sub-Saharan Africa. And your parochialism is actually flat-out unethical, right, Um, um, because you're prioritizing lower concerns from a standpoint of uh, human suffering and human well-being, right? In other words, Singer has – I mean, for Singer, parochialism is sort of like speciesism, right? It's illegitimate, right? And I think that in a lot in a, in, a, in a lot of ways, philosophy, at least its mainline tradition, <clears throat> rejects parochialism in a very fundamental way. And so I'm wondering if you have a, a more of a philosophical defense of the. I mean, what is your answer to a singer who says, um, "I understand you think the New York subway is very important, but there's pot-bellied children starving to death in sub-Saharan Africa. They matter more." And so you should be devoting your significant energies and monies to where there is the most need and not to the accidental fact of what happens to be right next to you. What's your, what's your response to that very common? And you know, a Kantian will say something similar just along a different vector, right? Do you have a philosophical defense of this idea of parochialism?
1: Well, um did <laughs> I was that, was that was that was that did I just sucker punch you or something? Um <laughs> Yeah, I uh, get no well um, it's a uh, <coughs> okay, that's that's a a serious challenge. I mean, I think that as I was saying before, nor I think that the norms that we live by are things which are stitched together first and foremost via human engagement and relationship. Um, So, (coughs) uh, and you know, I'm, it's not a complete necessarily like an ethics (coughs) of care, though. I think that this is, there's important elements to the ethics of care uh, tradition that get at this. Um, that you your very identity, your very personality was established by the nurturing say of your parents um, your your, the, your formative years you have been your very sense of your initial sense of what is appropriate and inappropriate of what is uh, what is to be expected and not is established kind of on a very fundamental kind of emotional level. Um, Shaped, shaping your identity, and this continues in the various relationships that you have—your your relationships with your wife, your daughter, uh, friends—and it is important to kind of make, kind of build this world. I think from from like yourself on out. Now, the idea about what has greater value or greater significance, you know, or suffering, starving in the world, I mean, that is going to be an abstract. First, it's an abstract argument, you know, based on kind of more uh, certain principles. Right. But I think you have to get to those principles by this kind of much more. Um, kind of individualized and then not just individualized, but relationship root. It's kind of like a hand in hand in hand to get to the bigger, bigger picture. Um, I am not in any way going to deny the suffering people have around the world. I think I am at this point in my life, I'm in a better position to do more here. And I think that this is important. I'm, I'm, uncomfortable with the thought that there is any sort of, and I guess I don't believe it, um, that there's any sort of kind of impersonal universal scale that can, that can really say where the worst problems are and like what, and what obligations that I have. Um, If, if the point is, is that I need to, I'm obliged to give um, and work towards starvation in another part of the world. And if everyone else is, well, who is, is anyone here responsible for what's going on nearby? I mean, there's, there's starvation here in this city, which I live in. Um, kids are going to school in the public school system, hungry. Um, I think there's about 10% of the students in you know, when you think there's about a million public school students here in New York City, well over 100,000 of them are homeless, are, are defined as homeless, either live in shelters or they live in temporary housing. They're getting bounced around from home to home. Um, many of them do not have enough to eat. Uh, there have been studies that have come out about, um, I mean, there's hunger. Uh, there's considerable hunger in the CUNY system. So on the collegiate level, there are kids not enough to eat. Um, what's the, you know, is there a responsibility to them as well? Yeah,
0: um, yeah, yeah.
1: I feel that it's important to do things, to engage these sorts of issues and to try to, you know, to work. You know, I think working locally is, you know, is, is not to be dismissed as illegitimate. Um, I can't, but i don't think i can like put it on a par um you know or, or try to balance it with um kind of these more kind of a much more global perspective yeah um yeah. i'd like to think that if more people thought parochially um that some of the global problems would be would come down yeah. Uh, yeah. and diminished so i mean i i i do not i don't think i'm nothing, i'm going to be persuading singer or any, or anyone who would necessarily agree with him. But I guess I'm not persuaded either from the other perspective that I have a greater obligation yeah. to think yeah. globally rather than locally. Yeah.
0: Now, listen, you don't have to convince me. I, 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 I'm, I find singer completely unconvincing. Um, um, I guess the reason I'm asking is, I mean, partly just cause I'm interested. Um, um, as to whether, sort of the whether whether a critique of of universalism and a predilection for a more parochial view of philosophy um, is 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 in some way related to or falls out of your anti-realism, right? I mean, that's that's sort of one thing that it does. To me. Um, I maybe think you could it, say it just does. a word about how the relationship because. Listen, we can have this discussion here. I've done I've done very pretty high end topics on this channel, and people are up to it. Could you say maybe a few words about how you see um, parochialism coming out of the anti uh, the moral anti realism? Just give give the advertisement for it, sort of. Well,
1: that if 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 you take seriously as I do that your normative beliefs your normative judgments are um you know that they are you know they're not mind independent they're not catching you know or trying to hang on to um an objective uh realm they're you know it's a it's a world to mind direction of fit you know so then how you know, what those beliefs and judgments are, are, something that you have to work out, not just yourself, but I think with other people, with people, kind of uh, the people you are you are naturally engaged with. So if there isn't kind of a universal truth, if there's no one way for to how to live, for a human being to live then it is, there are multiplicity of experiments and living. Um, and the living, you know, we often think about, you know, think about a million cents of, you know, experiments and living. It, it has a, it's a hyper, you know, individualized conception, you know, kind of that you know, each one of us is supposed to try to find our, our own, you know, make our own experiments, live our own way. But I, I actually think that, it's crucial that this is something kind of, a, it's a communal thing. It's something that you have to do collaboratively. Um, many of our experiments in living, many of our kind of normative visions require other people.
0: I would say most just like, of them do.
1: Yeah. And so you need to engage the people that you happen to find yourself with um, and work it out. So it's like they have their visions and we have to kind of collaborate. We have to commiserate. We have to debate. We have to t- figure out how we're going to do these things here at this time. Um, so, th- you know, that, that you know, n- normativity is fragmented in that way. So, you know, all, all of these various experiments um kind of are kind of tied to their time and their place. So, you know, if, you know, so, I mean, that to me is like the anti-realism of, okay, so there isn't a right way here. Um, then what really matters is um, kind of all the different ways, you know, like I'd like to see, you know, a, a thousand flowers bloom, you know, in a sense, you know, different a different variety of ways of people of people living. So it is, you know, rather than okay, this is the way, and yeah, I have, yeah, yeah, yeah. using philosophical reason have found you know the truth, you which know, I don't as you know don't find that in any way persuasive. Yeah, no, I like that. I like that very
0: much. It Actually, um, you you were saying It's reminiscent of care ethics. I actually was thinking it's reminiscent of W. D. Ross, um, um, in the right and the good. Um who talks about these duties that arise, these prima facie duties that arise just simply out of the bare fact of our various relations to others. So you know, if you pay me a kindness, I feel a duty of gratitude, right? if If I harm you in some way, I feel a duty of reparation. I mean, um and that these are not articulable independently of those uh, relationships. Um, and the idea is sort of it sounds to me like what you're saying is like, look if if it was the case that um, moral obligations or duties were objective in the way that the mainline philosophical tradition likes to think they are, then they would be entirely rationally scrutable, right? But if they're not, then it means that we we only can even know what they are in our engagements with other people because they arise out of those engagements. And um, that's why Ross says what your actual duty is is entirely local, right? It depends on what your prima facie duties are in the circumstances. Excuse me. And which are the most pressing in those circumstances, which means among the people you're engaged with. Um, um, So I I like that very much. I guess that then the last thing I want to ask you is, um, and I don't mean to ask you things that constantly are suggesting that, your Sisyphus pushing a ball up a mountain, but but I guess maybe it does somewhat have that quality to it. And here, here's what, what what I would say just about this: you're fi- you're fighting two forces, right? One force is in philosophy itself. There's a tendency towards the universalism. You even said to me, one of the philosophers you approached told you he wasn't a, he wasn't parochial, right? Didn't, isn't that one of the, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, that's actually
1: where you know I. I i the word i have kind of co opted the word i mean i was like thinking you know let us look at some local issues, local problems um but uh I remember asking him you know do you wanna do you wanna write something you know about uh you know about the cities like well you know my philosophy is you know i don't i don't really think very parochially you know and it just it kind of like I was disappointed, but I was like, "That's a great." <laughs> that's- <laughs> I'm going to the parochial. Gonna- <laughs> exactly. We um, need to make it. You know, that's going to be the slogan. Go the parochial. O-
0: the other thing I'm wondering about um, has two pieces, and it, it's just reminding me of, of kind of a, a semi fight I had with Massimo on Twitter just just the other day about this. Um, um a in the internet age it's much, much less and less the case that people feel that their community is coextensive with their physical location because that's number one. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you're fighting that, right? But number two, the city you're in is so cosmopolitan. In other words, I wonder if you'd be having a lot more success in a small town where there's much more of a sense of loyalty to place, right, than in a a place that is almost the definition of a global city, right? Mm -hmm. Um, um, So I wonder whether the parochialism, which I share, is just in your case, it it puts you in a position where you're fighting so many forces. You're fighting the discipline, which tends to be universalist. You're fighting the internet age, which tends to sort of, community is where I find people that agree with me, even if they're not next door. Mm -hmm. And then you're also fighting the fact that cities are increasingly cosmopolitan and global and there is no loyalty to place. There is no sense of, I don't know if that's very gloomy sounding or whether you want to go, but just that's what I'm wondering whether you, you appreciate that these forces are going to have to be overcome to get any real traction.
1: Well, yes. Um, I, you know, I, I think they're all, you know, they're different, challenges um, and how do you get a cosmopolitan place like New York to start thinking more locally? How do you do that? Well, one way is in terms I mean, it, it has to think more locally in terms of, and, and it is, I mean, some of these are, you know, trends were already happening it has to think of it in terms ecologically um, you know, as as you know, we have to deal with issues of climate change. I mean, we're, we're a coastal city, um, and you know, we have, um, you know, the uh, the topography of the city, um, the the harbors, um, the way that storms affect us, the way Superstorm Sandy affected New York City, any sort of st- storm like that. I mean, we have to deal with. Um, environmental issues and uh, that are specific to where specific you are to our city
0: right.
1: um so um you know and you, know, you think about the the you know the larger like the watershed and you know issues about water i mean there are certain things that are we do have to think about it in terms about you know so being a global city in terms of of uh, Cultural reach in terms of finance, uh, in terms of politics. I mean, that is kind of, you know, a side point, you know, it, you know, we have local concerns and issues. Um, but being cosmopolitan in those ways, being kind of, um, uh, kind of, kind of this cultural, um, uh, mirror of the world in many ways. That's part of our local that's who we are you know i mean that's that that's the the city you know this it it's a unique city in that sense I mean we are a city where the number of languages being spoken is just extraordinary um, and we are you know a city with enormous immigrant you know immigrant populations um, we are um we're a city that in a sense prides itself on this kind of uh, a certain degree of, of openness, um, that, you know, that is part of, you know, our identity. So, um, you know, as you know, though, you know, from living here, I mean, look, many, for many people living in the city, um, you, you identify with your neighborhood,
0: but you know, they, I mean, so, it, do they still? Yes. Uh,
1: yeah. I mean, it used to
0: be, a. I mean, I mean, we would make jokes about this and our professor would make. I mean, you know, you know, Brooklyn was a different country. Right. Um, um, one of our professors famously said, well, after being invited to a party in Brooklyn, he said, um, I don't go anywhere where I need to get shots. Right. Um, um, that was Jerry oh. Katz who said that I think. Um, yeah, well,
1: um, I, I, I doubt there are too many places. Yeah, I mean, Brooklyn is. I don't is, get the
0: sense that, that I don't get the sense that New York, that New that New Yorkers still identify so much with local neighborhoods, lo, boroughs, even to the point to which the, it seems to me those regional local accents have kind of diminished, right? Um, it used to be that, a, you know, a Bronxer, you really could tell the difference between a Bronxer a, and a, and a Queenser a, and a Manhattanite. I'm just wondering whether, has it sustained its kind of localness in people's minds?
1: I, I think it has. I mean, I, I do think that there is, you know, kind of a lot of local pride and, and a lot of neighborhood um, investment meaning you know, people being kind of active and concerned about what is going on in their neighborhoods, about their local schools, um, about you know whether they have farmers' markets and and you know what's going on at the the library. I mean, there's there's a lot of kind of Brooklyn pride, Queens pride. You know, um, you know, I live up, you know, the what we I, I live in Washington Heights, so I'm in the upper reaches of Manhattan. We call it upstate Manhattan. Or, you know, you know, it's way uptown. Yeah. Um, and, um, huge, um, uh, Dominican, um, population in Washington Heights and in Inwood. Um, and there's a fierce pride there about that this is, you know, this is who, you know, who they are. This is very much, uh, kind of their area that they, they have great emotional connection to. Um, and for the non-Dominican population, I th- it is kind of somewhat contagious.
0: You wind up absorbing it partly because you, you of the, do. the local stores and the restaurants and yes. you're going to get the cuisine. You're going to get the sort of the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes.
1: And, um, so, you know, uh, Lin, Manuel, Miranda, you know, they're coming out with a, a movie version of the Broadway, um, uh, musical, um, in the Heights, um, which takes place up here. So, I mean, you, you've got um, – there's a lot of, I think, a real kind of connection there to to the neighborhood. And I think that you get this in a fair number of neighborhoods still in the city. That, so that uh, hasn't dimen- – Because they- I think it's something in a sense that you have to do in a city so large.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, I mean, so the, the city is just so incredibly immense – that, you know, I think it's almost very natural. You're just like, okay, this is my little, you know, this 10 blocks, you know, this, you know, this is, this is, this is our place.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad to hear that. I'm, um, And, you know, I probably nowadays just don't visit enough to sort of see that anymore Um, and don't spend enough time to see that anymore. I just got the sort of sense that what used to be a city that had much more local flavors has become kind of, Taken on this globalized quality, where everything becomes kind of fusion-y, generic. Um, so I can remember when the Upper East Side, you know, ten blocks was Hungarian, and then the next ten blocks was Czech and German, and then actually the restaurants would change as you went. And now it just seems like everything is this sort of you know nouvelle cuisine, artisanal um, stuff that that could be anywhere. I mean, you could be you could be in Lo- you know you could be in London, you could be in Paris. There's nothing. It's good to hear though from you. What sounds to me you're saying. That that hasn't really completely gotten washed away.
1: Well, it hasn't completely really washed away, but the things you're concerned about are happening. They that that's you know that's true. I mean, it it's um, there is a a lot of local flavor is being lost. A lot of iconic places uh, in different neighborhoods are closing down um part commercial rent laws are problematic here it's just incredibly expensive um and you know there's also you know there's a process of of kind of like an odd suburbanization of the city is taking place so it, it is becoming a more in some ways kind of comfortable place yeah, I could see and that. so you're you're getting you know you're getting chain stores and uh, it is um some things is it it's the city is changing um and things are being lost, but there is also certain elements people are still trying to hold on, but they're adapting. Yeah. Um and I think ultimately again that is you know kind of the philosophical challenge, or I right? think you know humans adapt you know to their change but like how are we doing it you know right. are is it is it a self-conscious thoughtful uh um reflective attempt yeah. at adaptation
0: yeah yeah now i guess you know look i mean this is all grist for exactly the sort of philosophy you want to, you want to do you want people to do and i guess maybe all that i'm wondering is whether in order to get people to do local philosophy you may first have to really promote a more localist mentality right in a city that seems to be doing everything it can to become less local right in this in in, in a certain way Um, and so it seems to me you really do have um, you 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 got stuff to face that's um, that's not easy to overcome Um, you've got your work cut out for you but I guess that's what makes it interesting and challenging right certainly all right well thank you i this is really interesting and fun and I, and i i hope we can we can um maybe um talk again maybe about some a, a single issue a very specific issue i wouldn't mind talking to you just in general about the stuff about ethics that we're talking about um, mm-hmm. um that that are interesting but thank you so much for uh, for for talking with me about uh, what you're doing and thank um, you
1: for having me i appreciate it
0: and uh and uh we're gonna have i'm gonna ask you to send me links to all the things you're involved in because um, there's a link section that goes along with the dialogues that people uh can go to and see the things you're doing and maybe um even get involved with so uh thanks
1: again joe thank you i appreciate it, it was all right take fun. care all, all right, right bye-bye ciao